Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Action and Ambition, the show that takes you all over the world to share interviews with the most successful and relevant people on the planet. Hear their backstory, get the most important lessons they've learned on their road to success, and hear exclusive tips on how to implement their success in your own life. Action and Ambition is brought to you by Entrepreneur Magazine and your host, Andrew Metal. Hi, hi, hello, welcome everyone. I am your host as always, Winston, and this is the Action and Ambition podcast. I would love to welcome everyone to our latest discussion on the evolving landscape of investment and entrepreneurship. And I have a very, very exciting guest because today uh, we're incredibly fortunate to have uh, with us such as such a distinguished figure in the world of private equity and investment management, Sir Nate Wesson. Uh, Nate is the co-founder of Hobar Partners. Uh, it's a trailblazing private equity firm known for uh, its innovative approach in investment, investing in profitable companies. Uh, he's also a key figure at uh, Alveria, a unique member-led family of office uh, co-investment platform. Uh, his expertise and insight have been shaping investment strategies for over two decades now, which is quite a long time, but particularly at the intriguing intersection of institutional family enterprise, investment management, and uh, imp impactful strategy. Uh, I hope I summarized appropriately what our guest uh, does and you know can do, but uh, I would love to hear from him as well. So Nate, hi, how are you? And tell me if there is to something to confirm, to add, whatever. Yes, uh, I can. I can neither, Winston. I can neither confirm nor deny anything you just said. Uh, <laughs> as a uh, no, as a as 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 always, you are spot on. Uh, thank you for the the kind remarks and and uh, the introduction. And we're really passionate and proud of the the work we've done here at Hallbar. And the 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 you know we're a thematic investment shop focusing on uh, those uh, opportunities uh, for companies who have achieved post product market fit. Uh, and are ready to to enter that next stage of of growth, and we do that in a number of different ways through a number of uh, uh, unique strategies with the firm. Uh, one of the most important ones for our discussion today will be entrepreneurship through acquisition and how we think about uh, the search fund asset class and how that's uh, grown and and expanded over the years into mm. and allowed a lot of it, uh, folks to really uh, take um, what may have been. Uh, a potential uh, hard step into entrepreneurship, and we we tried to make that that step much easier. Right, and that's actually what I would love to first talk about. Uh, if if you could explain the concept of uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition, and particularly in the context of uh, of a search fund like Hobart Partners, how does this? Uh, not only that, but not only the explanation, but I would also love to know how does this approach differentiate from traditional venture capital models? 
Yeah, that's what you just asked, like uh, a loaded, incredibly <laughs> important question. And and it starts with defining all three of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and so let's let's do that. Let's first define what a what a search fund is and, and kind of take that wrapper off. A right. search fund is really uh, an individual who decides that they want to go out and look for a company to buy and then ultimately operate. And mm-hmm. so this concept emerged in the 80s and really uh, started to formulate in the 90s uh, and uh, became a, a formal asset class in in what I'll call the, the mid-2000s, uh, early 2010s, right? So the uh, search funds as an asset class has actually only been around 10 or 10 to 15 years. So as an asset class, it's a very young asset class from an investing standpoint. So there's a lot of maturation process going on. But really what it used to be uh, initially when when search funds were started is if you, Winston, wanted to go out and you had a wonderful career, you operated a manufacturing company for a long time, and you wanted to go out and find a manufacturing company to to, uh, own and operate yourself, you would go to a number of people you knew. They would actually put a whole bunch of, of capital together so you could live. Um, maybe they would invest, each person would invest $25,000 or $50,000 or $100,000. And you would collect about two hundred, whatever you needed to live, $200,000 for, for the year or $300,000 for two years, whatever you thought you needed to live, you collected that as an initial investment. And what that did is that gave individuals who invested in you for the search phase uh, uh, an opportunity to invest in the deal phase on a pro rata basis. So that's how search funds came into being. Once you found a company, that group of investors or others who came in at that moment would help you buy the company and provide the equity for the purchase. So that's that's really in in a in a very uh, a kind of boiled down way. That's the that's mm-hmm. the way search funds happen. So that will define search funds. Entrepreneurship through acquisition is uh, really the process of um, you know thinking through as search funds kind of matured. It really is this process of uh, finding a uh, you know building out uh, your process for looking for a company, uh, of purchasing that company, then ultimately operating that company. That's mm-hmm. that's really it. It's more process bad. A search fund is actually the capital you raise, and entrepreneurship through acquisition is actually the process of yeah. finding, buying, and operating a company. And last but not least, uh, you know you have to add into as search funds and entrepreneurs have have sort of uh, an entrepreneurship through acquisition has sort of grown up. Private equity uh, has uh, has really started to enter the phase. So let's define private equity in a second, because you're right. Uh, it really is. Uh, there are different parts of private equity. In private equity, there's generally venture capital, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and then large buyout, which we we typically think of as large scale, late stage. Uh, acquisition, uh, larger company, late stage acquisition capital, where they buy mm. companies that are in business. And in the middle, there's there's growth equity, which typically takes a minority investment uh, in, a, in, a, in a company uh, that is looking to scale for growth. Then there's two types of growth equity investments as well. But let's just talk a little bit about what uh, investing in, in ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition, 
Mm -hmm. uh, how that differs from venture investing, right? Because they're both investing in smaller companies or uh, companies that uh, hopefully have really wonderful growth projections. Typically, when you invest in venture, you're looking for a very, very high growth company, uh, a company that initially that someday may be able to IPO, and you're mm -hmm. taking a minority investment. And as a institutional investor, you're making a number of these investments, maybe 50 to 100 in one portfolio. Right. When you invest in entrepreneurship through acquisition, or when you invest in what we call lower middle market uh, buyout or low, lower middle market growth equity investing, you're looking for steady cash flow, stable asset like companies mm -hmm. that you know a really wonderful operator can grow. And you are almost always at the post-product market fit stage and a revenue and, and profitable company where if you're a venture investor, you're almost always investing before the company has reached profitability. So it's there are very different ways of investing, uh, very different risk profiles for investing on an individual investment basis. Right, right. And and do you think that's that the, the, the approach is what different this approach? Uh, particularly is what differentiates it from uh, traditional venture capital models, or are there more uh, differences that we can point out? Yeah, this is what really makes and why we led uh, at Hallbar with this uh, basically entrepreneurship through uh, acquisition as our first instant. It's a very difficult asset to get um, get institutional investment dollars into. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll explain why that is in a second. But yes, to answer your question very succinctly, Absolutely, they are completely different risk reward profiles. In venture investing, you're looking at if you're putting it together a portfolio of 100 companies, you're looking, quote unquote, for the one company that goes uh, to, to IPO, that right. unicorn yeah, the company. Uber or the. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. you got it. In, in entrepreneurship through acquisition, we're actually looking for 99 out of our 100 companies to be successful and grow. Mm -hmm. We are not looking for a unicorn. We're looking for uh, growth, steady growth year in, year out by our portfolio companies. And we don't want a single one of our portfolio companies to fail. Mm -hmm. uh, we are we are injecting capital into typically a business that has been potentially a little complacent over the last several years and mm -hmm. uh, is ready for new leadership. And uh, that leadership will help grow that company. And usually our companies won't IPO. Usually it'll be a, a larger strategic buyer that has now seen uh, how this could be the company that we built could be accretive to the company that they're running. Right. Um, but next thing that I want, I want, to, I want you to uh, give definition for is, before I ask my question, is Silver Tsunami. Tell so, about that? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and we are, you know, when you think about the term silver tsunami, it's very relevant into what the what Hallbar is doing and what uh, many other folks are trying to, to, to accomplish when they when they are uh, doing a search fund or entrepreneurship through acquisition strategy. We are in a, uh, a stage where many of the lower middle market businesses across both North America and Europe are in a stage where their current leadership is getting to a point where 
they're they're at the age where they would like to retire uh, or would like to at least not have the day in day out operations. Because uh, in just in the global population, we have a number of folks and, and baby boomers are the key generation in the US. Uh, we have a number of folks that it's the largest generation who have now entered their mid 60s uh, mm-hmm. and uh, even uh, even 70s. And they're really ready to transition the challenges uh, and what creates such a wonderful entrepreneurship acquisition uh, opportunity at uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition opportunity is that there are all these companies, lower middle market companies that don't have a succession plan. So we have this silver tsunami of, you know, kind of baby boomers and and individuals in their 60s and 70s who are ready to take the next chapter in their lives, but they don't have a succession plan for their business. And the entrepreneurship through acquisition programs that are out there today, including the one in partnership uh, partnerships that all are as they are incredible answers for uh, these wonderful businesses who are important to their communities and we can help keep those running and frankly, allow those companies to grow. Right. So with your unique perspective, I don't want this coming absolutely from you. How do you see the silver tsunami shaping the landscape of entrepreneurship through acquisitions that we were just talking about and even the opportunities and the challenges that this demographic shift presents? Yeah, capital and talent are a lot like water, right? They're going to go to uh, the point uh, and fill that need, right? They, they'll, they'll just travel to exactly where uh, you need it to travel to. And at this point, uh, you can see both um, people who who have maybe these wonderful corporate professional careers, or maybe they have these great operational experiences you can see that people are realizing that the silver tsunami is occurring right now. And there's wonderful opportunities to help these lower middle market and middle market businesses continue to grow. And and even um, over the next uh, decade or two uh, and, and make a wonderful living for them and their family. The other part is capital, right? Capital is realized the, over the last 10 years, if you look at the returns, of search funds as an asset class. And there's a wonderful um, report by uh, Stanford University that comes out every other year Mm. that actually talks about um, the returns as search funds as an asset class. The returns have been incredible uh, as an asset class. And there is no end in sight there. Uh, as, As more and more opportunities come, that those returns for those asset classes should be still have all the right ingredients to be strong for the next decade or two. Um, and why are returns for this asset class so strong? Because you have a uh, a searcher who becomes the person who's searching for a company, the entrepreneur, mm-hmm. who becomes the the owner operator. Um, and they're being backed by a wonderful a group of resources, capital, who are also value add resources. What that means is you've got somebody who is not just a a uh, in a private equity placed operator, somebody who has no interest in the company. The person running the company met with the former founder, talked to all the employees, did the due diligence, walked in day one, said, "I want to be part of this team and be part of this group." That we we call that uh, passion alpha. 
there is passion around somebody who led the process to acquiring and then ultimately operating that you mm-hmm. can't replicate in a kind of a cold private equity sort of acquisition model, buyout model. You just can't, if you place a very talented CEO in a company that's great, but they don't, they didn't, they didn't select the company. They didn't, they don't have any ownership equity in this. They don't have mm-hmm. uh, uh, the opera. They haven't met the employees before they even got there. They didn't know the family who, who uh, was operating the company? What they they just don't have that same level of passion. That passion translates to re- what we what really ends up being wonderful financial returns. Uh, and uh, Hallbar has uh, a distinct advantage as as we have deep partnerships through uh, through entrepreneurship through acquisition programs, including a group called NCA, and that allows us to invest in the space with just. Uh, entrepreneurs who have a ton of resources supporting them along every step of the process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And the point about passion, I think is something that people might underestimate, but you know, when you have passion for something, you really want to see it grow. You really want to see it flourish and be more than, you know, whatever it is. And since we're talking about passion, I also wanted to, uh, I wanted to take some insights from you about one of your passions that you've expressed, you know, expressed very, very strongly, that being uh, growth equity. So considering your extensive experience in this field, uh, what are some key factors you believe investors should consider when looking at growth equity opportunities? Yeah. And then we, we touched on it briefly and I'll dive mm-hmm. into it a little bit further. Like why yeah. is growth equity as an asset class so exciting? It I'm, I've always been somebody I I've never loved the, and I really, I do love venture. Don't get me wrong, but I never loved the idea that uh, you can't have every company be successful. And we all know, uh, you know, the law of large numbers, you're going to have companies that don't succeed. And frankly, we want to encourage as a, as a society risk taking. So, uh, and, and uh, capital formation around really good ideas is important. And uh, the United States has done an incredible job uh, with our, our venture culture supporting that. That's, there's a good set of institutions and a good set of support for that group. What I've always loved from an investor standpoint is once a company has achieved product market fit, not every company necessarily is going to, to be a unicorn status company, right? A company that, mm-hmm. that achieves a, 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 a billion dollars or more in revenue, right? We, right? we love these companies that have post product market fit. And when you think about it is, and will be growing, we buy profitable companies or invest in profitable companies. And those companies have great leadership now. So they were a great company before. And now that we've helped with a smooth transition, and now we're going to help grow that company over time. I feel as a risk adjusted return profile, we could help every single one of those companies be successful. We can help all the communities that they're in grow and thrive. We keep more and more jobs local in each one of these communities. And we build wonderful lasting relationships with our investors and uh, the folks running these companies who are, who are helping uh, create incredible value uh, for for all stakeholders. Right, right. And what about sort of the end of the the end goal or the end game for some businesses, which is having 
uh, an exit strategy. In your view, why should a profitable business consider partnering with a growth equity firm as part of their exit strategy? And how does it differ from you know the other exit options that are available? Yeah, so so generally there's there's let's call it uh, three or four kind of common exit strategies, right? Mm -hmm. One is that you go through an employee-led buyout, right? So the the employees of the company buy out all other investors, and and it becomes a wonderful exit for the investors and a wonderful thing for the employees and the entrepreneurs because now it's an employee-owned business. So that's a really wonderful outcome. Mm -hmm. Another uh, exit strategy is. Hey, we're going to go into uh, with a, with a larger potential company that's going to acquire us because we're a really important part of what they want to do for their growth strategy, right? So that's a strategic acquisition. Uh, there can be a financial acquisition where a larger uh, private equity firm uh, would mm -hmm. like to buy the positions from the growth equity firm because they they're they're now fits their portfolio construction mandate and how they're building. Or you could go into the public markets through an IPO, uh, which these are all very common, right? Uh, an IPO, a financial, a strategic, or an employee-led buyout, right? Those are mm -hmm. all ways that somebody could have an exit. Um, we don't we don't really preach that you need to have one type of exit or not. Like we're right. really preaching what's right for the company in terms of exit. I will say you should, as an entrepreneur, um, know what the typical phases are and exit strategies are for your type of business, right? Mm -hmm. Is this the type of business that generally can IPO? Is this a, the type of business that generally uh, could go through an, an employee-led uh, recapitalization or buyout? Is this the type of company that strategic uh, and uh, buyers or investors would be interested in? And know that that before, uh, as you build your, your plan, uh, you, should, you should be very uh, conscious of the type of exit strategy you have. The other really wonderful, and we have partners that do this a lot, there are wonderful groups, uh, some family offices and other investors that will acquire these assets for a buy and hold over the long run and never anticipate uh, selling them. And we actually think that's an additionally a wonderful outcome too. So knowing your exit strategy, uh, knowing the end before the start, I always talk about that a lot where mm -hmm. you should understand what's a likely uh, strategy for the capital that you will need in the future and the type of company you want to be. Absolutely. And I wanted to also talk a little bit about the the intersection that I mentioned at the top of uh, of the episode. Uh, I mean, you've worked extensively at this particular intersection of family enterprise uh, and investment management and uh, imp impact strategy. Uh, I think there is a question that kind of relates to morality, but also management as a whole, which is how do you align investment goals with impact you know, impact objectives that the company has, especially in a global context, which makes it a thousand times more difficult, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, the, yeah, the nuances there are incredible, and you're mm -hmm. you're spot on. Let's 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 take it when you think about ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance, and how um, firms no longer it, it, it's no longer. I think we're getting past the fact that that ESG is some sort of um, you know we're just reporting on it and we're getting into 
actual actual uh, sort of mandates and actions around ESG on on every individual company basis. I think the leadership for the company has to decide um, what are their values, right? And we go through a value career. You know, how do you express your values through? Uh, your uh, your business processes, your mm-hmm. engagement with all uh, stakeholders, and not to and, and to really stop. There used to be an old definition uh, that your goal uh, as an investor uh, or as an, as a uh, company uh, is to increase shareholder value. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very antiquated and quite narrow way to look at uh, this. I think the goal for any enterprise is to create shareholder or stakeholder value versus shareholder value. Stakeholder value means you improve the lives of the people in your community. You improve the lives of the folks that are, are working for your company. You tread lightly on the impact for the environment that you have. You make real, um, uh, real uh progress towards uh, leaving our world a little bit better place from the mm-hmm. environmental standard than you found it, right? And and that stakeholder idea that, that, that we are not in business for shareholders, but we are part of business and society, and those two things can't be disconnected. They're, they're, they're intertwined in, in, in all business ventures. That, I think, is becoming more and more a part of the the uh, every at every level uh, how we engage in business, and I've right. seen, and it's it's part of what we preach at Hall Bar as uh, we're we're investing not just for shareholder growth and value, but for for all stakeholders. And and so the good news is, and and we've I think we've reached a point in society where we can you can create wonderful shareholder value without mm-hmm. sacrificing doing good things to for all stakeholders. I think it's an and uh, type of question, not an either or anymore. And I think for a long time, right. people felt like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to go build this plant and I don't really care what happens to the environment around me because I'm just going to mm-hmm. try to increase my my uh, shareholder value. That's that's luckily, I think, um, a very old way of looking at uh, uh, running a company. And, and we we really preach to our entrepreneurs and operators that it's it's really important that you focus on stakeholder value across the board right yeah i i agree that they, those two things uh are not mutually exclusive and they can be you know they can coexist and have sort of a symbiotic relationship with each other because in that way everybody benefits you you know people who deserve you know whatever money they deserve they get to them community that deserves uh care uh and uh good impact and overall like just a lot of benefits from the enterprises that operate within them also deserve that win too uh and i I like the optimism in uh in your statement saying that this is uh it's becoming sort of a trend and we're seeing a shift uh in in the direction of these two things can exist together Aside from that one, uh, because I really want to get to the nuance of this, aside from that shift, what are some other trends and shifts that you're currently observing in the way family offices and mid-market businesses approach investment and in impact strategy? Yeah, I, I to, to you know to be very clear, like I think um, middle market businesses 
um, for, for a long time, didn't feel um, very, very much uh, a part of the, in, you know, focusing on impact, right? There was, there was, hey, let's print less and use less paper, but maybe there was initiative. I think now uh, we've reached a point where no matter how big or small a company is, uh, we can actually operate in a sustainable way. And I use the world's word sustainable in the broadest context, meaning we can sustain our communities, sustain uh, a healthy work environment for our employees and, save, and sustain profits for our, uh, for our uh, investors. I think sustain, once we've done that, we create wonderful ecosystems uh, and sustainable ecosystems where we can all live and thrive uh, in an amazing way. The other, the other nuance that that family offices, um, uh, and it's wonderful. I've been uh, I've been fortunate to work with and, and and help a number of family offices on strategy and investment advisory over the years. And uh, it, it, you can place capital to your values. And you asked about a trend that's really interesting. Values based investing is becoming uh, something that more and more family offices mm -hmm. are able to lean into. Where uh, even in your public market portfolio, you can now invest in uh, those companies you you know maybe you want to do now. You're really passionate about national defense, and it's a value that your family office has. Mm -hmm. You can lean into and construct an entire portfolio that um, that really focuses on that. Or let's say you have a passion around and your family has a passion around making sure that we have clean oceans. You are now able to start uh, looking and developing portfolios, both in the public and private markets that actually are so nuanced that you can express your values, not through only through your actions and your mm -hmm. giving, but also your capital allocations. Right. So now if you think about all investors, not just family offices, but this is, this is definitely a meaningful trend in the family office, uh, institutional family office investing space. Mm -hmm. There are three things you can do to express your values. There are your own individual actions that you take every day. Uh, there are those, uh, the, the engagement you have in the philanthropic organizations you support. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, you can now, in a very nuanced way, express your values through your capital allocations and receive returns that will still sustain uh, your your family office or your meet your investment objectives. That is that that's um, a credit to to a number of folks in the industry who've been able to develop values based investing strategies uh, and able to lean in. And if you 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 could even think about Hallbar's entrepreneurship through acquisition investing strategy. If you value lower middle market businesses, uh, the the ability for workers to grow your local community and invest in your local community, uh, this is a wonderful way to do that. And we we really feel passionate about uh, this is a values-based investment strategy on our end, right? We are investing in, in mm -hmm. lower middle market businesses and helping them continue to grow. Uh, and that sustains their communities, employees, and 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 kind of uh, the, the way of life for all, all of those folks. Right. Uh, I, I want to bring it back to you. Uh, so far, pretty much, I, I we've been talking about everything that is surrounding you and your work, but, uh, you know, regarding the topics that we've been discussing, but with 
this uh, this incredible run that you've had over two decades. Uh, we've mentioned this before in uh, you know advising investors and family offices. What have been some of the most rewarding aspects of your career, from your personal view, from you? Yeah, there's so first, it's always people are the most rewarding when you mm -hmm. get to engage. I've been privileged enough to engage with some very interesting and thoughtful and successful people. And that has been a, allowed me to gain a lot of insight to allow me to uh, learn from so many amazing mentors and, and, and people who uh, who have developed uh, their own thinking and way. And it's also allowed me uh, the privilege to uh, help others around their path and develop uh, their passions and, and mentor uh, individuals who would like to to grow and and their philanthropy or grow in their mm -hmm. investment acumen or grow in their uh, particular passion. I think it, it's always for me about relationships and people and passion. And uh, I've been very fortunate with the career I've chosen that mm -hmm. I've been able to express my own individual entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, we we founded uh, Hallbar and and we grew Hallbar from uh, from from you know just an idea to where it is today, and now we're, we're in a scenario to help many other people do the same. I, I couldn't be more proud of the people who I work with and and what we've done uh, to help nurture that ecosystem of entrepreneurship and growth. It's been it's been amazing, and I've been I felt very privileged to be around the people I've I've been around over the last twenty years. Uh, that's that sort of helped uh, get to this point. Right, and I would love to close with this one because uh, I think this is one of the uh, most important questions when it comes to talking, you know, uh, to someone who's an expert in something. Uh, it's it's always when you look back, sort of what would what would uh, what would be the advice that you would give to your younger self starting out in the world of private equity and uh, investment management. So uh, patience. Um, I mm -hmm. think uh, I think if I were to give my younger self, uh, you know, some advice, uh, and and you know, there is um, there is a plan, right? And I don't think I I knew when I was in business banking and for lower middle market companies, or I knew when I was working uh, for. Uh, family offices and devising a a multi asset uh, investment plan, or when I um, you know just uh, took a trip to uh, to to a new location, how all of that would come together uh, in a way that would allow me to 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 bring all these what I'll call um, uh, kind of kind of far away or disparate uh, pieces into one. Uh, rope, right? It's all mm -hmm. these threads of our life that you you don't necessarily know how they'll all be intertwined together, but when they do, they become an exceptionally strong uh, rope and 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 uh, will help uh, pull you along to kind of that next stage of your uh, your path and your uh, your career. And it's it's really hard. So sometimes in your younger self, you just don't see how all of those threads are going to eventually fit together. Um, and um, the other part is uh, intentionality, right? I think mm. I think there are times uh, with with my younger self that that maybe I, I just did something because it was in front of me. Uh, I, I think uh, doing something with intentionality is super, super important. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then last, I'm a naturally a bit of a risk adverse person. Um, I I would uh, I would tell my younger self that um, at some point you risk is actually um, one of the most important things we need to do, and it is okay to fail. Right. And and that part where you can tell yourself it's okay to fail, I think I I never let myself I never told myself it was okay to fail. And um, because you don't tell yourself it's okay to fail, when you think about entrepreneurship, uh, I probably waited much longer to, to, to start my own firm and, and, and launch our own strategies and, and put so I was doing this for others, but I wouldn't do it uh, in, in, a, in the context of, of my own firm because mm-hmm. uh, of the fear of failure. And I think if I would to give my, my younger self those three uh, kind of ideals uh, to hold on to and 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 really work through uh, that those that's how I would I would sort of coach myself uh, as we as we you know um, as we get to to you know kind of roll back time twenty years ago. Right. Well, you've heard it here, folks. Patience. Uh, you know, don't fear failure and uh, have the proper intentions have intentions to begin with and then you know make them proper and uh do what you got to do thank you very much nate for being here with us today we appreciate your insights we appreciate everything that you've said it has been truly a very very insightful uh episode uh if you have anything that you would like to plug uh socials direct people to a website whatever it is please go ahead yeah no please uh for those of you who'd like to learn more about hallbar please go to www hallbar.io and and uh, if you're interested on thinking and curious about your entrepreneurship through acquisition journey mm-hmm. uh, you can visit uh, Novastone Capital Advisors and uh, there is a way to apply through the entrepreneurship uh, program there. Uh, Winston, thank you uh, so much for spending uh, the time with us and, and together today. It was just incredible meeting and spending time with you. Thank you very much. That's uh, Those are very, very kind words. All right, gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've reached the end of our episode. I have been your host, as always, Winston, Action Ambition Podcast forever. Good day. Take care. Thanks for listening to Action and Ambition with your host, Andrew Metal. Please leave a review and subscribe and go to andrewmetal.com for all the exclusive lessons, behind-the-scenes footage, and video content of the show. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube at Action and Ambition, and we'll see you on the next episode.